second lecture of the fourth week of the 1984 Rare Book School. Tomorrow night, our lecturer is Nina Musinski, who's in the back of the room this evening, speaking on 18th century French stereotyping. This evening, our lecturer is William Joyce from the New York Public Library, where he is assistant director uh, of, or is it four, rare books and manuscripts, assistant director for rare books and manuscripts. There's been much discussion as to whether he is a medium or a large. My staff has decided that he is a medium. One of the traditions on such occasions, Bill, is you get a rare book school t-shirt. That having been taken care of, I now present my speaker, who will be speaking on the relationship between rare books and manuscripts. And it's a pleasure to welcome here, him here to Columbia. Thank you very much, Terry. I'm not sure that I'm a medium or a large myself, and I'll report the result. It's uh, very daunting indeed to hear yourself described as the second lecture in the fourth week. It's, uh, that's a marathon course for anyone. I wish you all well and wish us all stamina the, uh, from here to the end. I guess I start by begging your indulgence regarding the metaphorical sleight of hand that's found in the title of my talk tonight. That is baiting the tortoise with the hare. I'm not usually given to such matters, but when... Terry asked me for something catchy. Uh, this uh, arrived in my mind quite unannounced and unexpected, and I decided I would go with it. Uh, the real title, of course, is, well, the real topic, I should say, is in the subtitle, and that is rare, Managing Rare Books and Archives. But I will return to the matter of the title later. The term archives is meant generically here, and as I use it, will include the interest and materials normally handled by manuscripts curators and uh, uh, manuscript librarians. Both terms seem to be becoming more inclusive. Uh, rare books certainly has included over the course of time broadsides and pamphlets in addition to books and newspapers. More recently, uh, photographic books and photographs generally, as well as ephemera, appear to be uh, included uh, in the general uh, rubric uh, at my own institution, um, menus, and most recently, and perhaps infamously, uh, I don't, Frank, where are you? <laughs> I was thinking of our beer coaster collection, <laughs> which arrived to the surprise of both of us and uh, certainly has given a new dimension uh, to the, the nature of the material that we manage. Time out. Is that better? Okay. The term archives includes not only traditional paper documents and manuscripts, but also photographs, architectural records, maps and photographs, and books when they're part of institutional records, as well as the fast-growing area of machine-readable records that uh, daunts all of us. In my institution, as in many of yours, both rare books and archival units are now part of what we term special collections. The idea of special collections is primarily an administrative convenience or creation designed to link those units that manage what are traditionally described as primary source materials with artifactual value. One changing aspect is that special collections connotes collections where the sum might constitute research value, but where the individual items might not. 
The phrase special collections is unfortunate because the word special can imply distinctiveness and exclusion when the very intention is to bring special collections into the broader uh, administrative mainstream of repositories. So far, special collections units seem to have been organized to link very disparate uh, units under some centralized administrative jurisdiction. An example of this, uh, perhaps a little hoary with age now, but the uh, Beinecke Library at Yale, which prior to its um, uh, re, uh, its gathering together in the Beinecke Library had been in various corners, warrens, and closets of the Sterling Library. But special collections very often do not enter the mainstream of library activity in terms of cataloging, collection development, and conservation. Evidence for this is found in the low level of involvement of special collections units in the programs of RLG. As it happens, in, in uh, Austin, Texas, uh, last month at the ALA meeting, uh, there was a meeting to discuss the problem of the involvement of special collections people in the programs of RLG. Uh, and today I just had a telephone call, a uh, conversation with a RLG staff member concerning the same, the, uh, same topic. It does seem to me that we need to pay particular attention to how uh, those of us involved in using these materials can be uh, more readily involved and indeed integrated into uh, library programs generally. Special collections very often, uh, nonetheless it is within the special collections context that rare books and archives are now managed in libraries. Because of the administrative centralization involved, rare books and archival units are now often linked in that context of special collections. And it's what we do with the link that I propose to discuss tonight. Whether linked administratively within special collections or not, rare books and archives have special traditions, procedures, and patterns of training and experience. I'll review briefly uh, some of these uh, traditions, procedures, and experiences in order to put the management of rare books and uh, archives into some historical context. Then I'd like to review several factors that indicate closer ties between rare books and archive staff are at hand, and, some, and that administrative convenience is now complemented by developments that offer the likelihood of closer partnership between archivists and rare book librarians. First, the historical differences among librarians, archivists, and manuscript personnel. There are several topical areas, the first of which is education and training. For rare book librarians, the common denominator has been the MLS, supplemented by literary training. This stems, obviously enough, from the traditional strength of rare book collections, which are first editions, and uh, what we might call literary effusion. For archivists, there is no common denominator, though programs such as that here at Columbia are making strides to create one. But archivists still have a variety of backgrounds, especially in library science, history, literature, and the social sciences. For manuscripts personnel, they hover somewhat uneasily between librarians and archivists, though it seems to me gravitating uh, steadily away from library to archival training. The changing nature of the collections they manage uh, has much to do with making manuscripts curators into archivists. And by that I mean contemporary collections that are coming into uh, manuscript repositories require uh, the procedures and policies that uh, have governed archival activity for some time. 
Currently, archivists are struggling to develop some consensus on how best to implement uh, how re educational regulation, whether it be certification of individuals, approval of educational programs, or some type of evaluation of repositories. Certainly not all three are necessary, but some type of consensual way of regulating and defining the profession is essential. There is an SAA session at the uh, upcoming meeting in Washington that will deal with that, and if I might um, somewhat shamelessly advertise the fact that um, I'm chairing the session, uh, Bob Wedgworth from the ALA will be giving a paper on the library method. Uh, Larry Rieger from the American Association for Museums will be talking about their programs, and Mary Robeck from uh, the Association of Records Managers will be talking about some of their activity. Uh, parenthetically, uh, the uh, society has created a small group to study the problem of certification of individuals, and it's encouraging to me to see that there is some renewed interest uh, in the problem of how one goes about defining uh, what constitutes professionalism, or if not defining it, at least what credential we can all look to that will uh, certify one to the satisfaction of us all. Librarians, on the other hand, have had regula regulatory procedures for some years, though uh, I'm afraid that they are no more immune from efforts to downgrade professionalism than archivists. Both librarians and archivists have had in the last year or so to contend with new regulations from the Office of Personnel Management in the federal government that would reduce the entry requirement uh, for both uh, professional positions, uh, one obviously in the Library of Congress and the other in the National Archives. There's been vigorous resistance uh, to this downgrading, um, but I don't know that the results are clear yet, and I think it's something that should concern us all. Perhaps most ominously, libraries face the prospect of a reduction in professional jobs as bibliographic utilities continue to expand cataloging efforts so that original cataloging becomes less and less necessary in libraries, thereby reducing the number of job opportunities. Library educators will have to rethink assumptions and the very principles of librarianship or face the prospect of declining opportunities. Unfortunately, there's very little research on either library or archival issues, and the paucity of this research means there is little in the way of new knowledge or new ways of thinking about library and archival problems. I can't emphasize enough uh, how important that is. This raises questions, at least in my mind, about the professionalism that we aspire to or, or claim. And I think that we all have to uh, pay attention, especially library and archival educators, to thinking about the education of librarians and archivists in terms of decision-making, especially in the areas of collection development, uh, reference issues, and conservation administration. There is much too much of how to do it not nearly enough research and writing on the issues that are common to all of us. Second area of historical difference that I would like to touch on is that of procedures. Now, most of you are aware library cataloging dates in the middle of the 19th century. Rules on cataloging and classification were first codified in 1876. The cataloging rules and the growing sophistication of uh, um, accompanied in, in bibliography since the late 19th century have created traditions and common ways of looking at and organizing information for cataloging and bibliography. In the archival world, initially deriving from subject classification, 
archival uh, processing, that is arrangement and description, in the 19th century consisted of organizing records according to subjects. In the late 19th century, uh, European principles were almost literally imported, and the practices uh, were adopted that have transformed archival activity. And rather than having uh, main entries and s identification of author and so on, as in cataloging, archivists tend to operate under the principle provenance, that is, ma organizing material by the office of origin, respect of fond, which is um, original filing order shall be maintained where possible. And finally, uh, writing descriptions collectively, that is to say, describing the entire collection rather than describing the individual items, as is the case with uh, librarians. Primarily owing to the literary nature of their collections, manuscript curators initially relied on emphasizing uh, literary manuscripts and early codexes, thereby they would follow library practice and describe items individually. But in recent years, the library procedures have been dropped and archival uh, procedures adopted, uh, largely uh, because of what I described before. The uh, collections that manuscripts people have to uh, cope with these days simply will not admit of individual description. Third area, and in addition to these other, other procedural uh, similarities, have to do with a whole range of library administration. Um, handling reference problems, registration of readers, photo duplication, and, and, and the like. There are great similarities there, but the essential uh, differences stem from the way in which uh, we catalog. Research interests. Rare book librarians have emphasized research in codex form, investigating such matters as typographical design, printing paper, binding structures, and other aspects of the book. Books are cultural artifacts and are designed to meet a cultural purpose. Purposes might be ideological, doctrinal, social, or ephemeral. That is to say, a laundry ticket or something of that nature, which might not be exactly uh, doctrinal, but is equally cultural in some important respect. Bibliography and printing history are the pr primary disciplinary focuses for rare book librarians. Archivists interested in documents, and in, in, connect, in contrast to books, documents are not cultural artifacts but are created spontaneously to record transactions. Transactions are ends in themselves. For example, letters, vital records, accounts, and minutes. Those are not designed for some other purpose, but rather exist in themselves simply to record some kind of transaction uh, between or among people. Administrative history, to understand the functioning and origins of institutions, is the primary disciplinary focus for the research activity of archivists. Manuscript personnel traditionally, again hovering in between, have traditionally studied both, though the literary orientation has often inclined them to study documents as cultural artifacts supporting the study of books. Uh, so that um, what happens in the case of manuscripts personnel is that very often they study the document as a document, but in the context of literature. The relation uh, of uh, rare books librarians and archivists to overall library administration uh, creates a situation in which the core activity of rare book librarians should be understood by library administrators, and I emphasize the word should, and uh, better integrated in terms of the work of the library generally. And of course, uh, those activities of collection development, cataloging, conservation, and reference uh, while uh, 
one would expect that to be the case, as I was uh, saying earlier, uh, in, in, in the RLG context where special collections activities and programs need to be better uh, integrated into RLG. I think the same is true in many of our own institutions. And very often, um, the uh, special collections uh, context does not afford the easiest way of gaining either ready understanding on the part of administrators or budgetary allocations. Uh, this is a far more common problem, uh, at least in my observation and experience, and I think deserves more attention than it gets. By contrast, some archival uh, core procedures appear not to be well understood by library administrators, and indeed most archivists I know complain all the time about having to educate superiors as to what it is they do. Um, as a manuscript procedures become more archival, um, their relation to library administrators uh, also appears to be um, encountering some difficulty in these regards. Turning from areas of historical differences to those factors that indicate that closer ties between rare books and archival staff may be at hand, uh, might touch first on changing patterns of research use. Rare book research is down. As uh, one of the foremost practitioners in the field has said, intellectual history is flatter than a pancake. Idealism has been supplanted by pragmatism and Arthur O. Lovejoy's great chain of being and other uh, intellectual um, studies of ideas over time just do not exist. By the same token, literary historians appear to be engaged more in deconstruction or deconstructing rather than constructing texts. Uh, indeed, there is great disinterest in authorial intention among many literary researchers these days. The primary uh, emphasis seems to be on what, what it is that the reader has read and how he might pursue it in terms of the discrete parts. And some of the parts seem, appear to have very little relation to the text as far as that goes. There was less research in traditional historical topics. What might be called drum and trumpet history has fallen on hard times. And the collections that support research in politics and military activity and diplomatic activity and all the rest of it appeared not to be very popular. But social history, working class history, cultural studies are all opening up as never before. And sources such as vital records and records such as military pension files, church records, tax records, all the places where anonymous people reside are getting uh, new attention and are being exploited uh, for these projects. Genealogical research has also stimulated much research use in archives and in repositories that uh, contain lots of names and sources. Printing history is also finding a new appeal, possibly because of the potential for linking social and intellectual history appears to me to be something of a vacuum in humanistic research these days. Uh, while, as I said, intellectual history might be flatter than a pancake, I think there are those who are concerned about the link between ideas and cultural studies and, and some of these other more practical or pragmatic topics. And printing history offers one way to study social history and at the same time to study ideas in their social context. It also appears to me to have something to do with the link, uh, the, the uh, predominance these days of pragmatism or instrumentalism, and it affords the study of ideas in a very congenial context. In any case, there's no doubt that printing and publishing history is on the rise. All of these patterns of research feature what I would describe as low-yield research. 
that is, using a fair quantity of documents and books to find a relatively few and thin pieces of data pertinent to the topic. This type of research seems to put a premium on generating lists and indexes for the help of researchers. This is especially conducive to machine-readable applications, that is, generating indexes and lists and so on. Researchers of all types need access to information generically, irrespective of the format, especially researchers in social history topics and, and related activity, and to the extent that the machine can help them by generating and then manipulating these lists and indexes, we're all better off. Uh, one aside, it occurred to me that the availability of computers and their capabilities might lead researchers to pursue topics that are more suited to the ability of the machine. Or to put it another way, do intellectual trends follow not only data, but how the data can be manipulated by the latest technological invention? It's an interesting speculation. In the area of technological change, we need we have seen emphasis recently on, the, on clarifying the relation between information and the medium in which the information is carried. That is, whether it be a book, a microphone, a paper document, a computer tape, or a video disc. Some new technological formats can carry data that formerly would have appeared in very different media. Information is cataloged separately now from the medium carrying it, and machine-readable cataloging has certainly driven that point home. This has implications for special collections, especially those organized by media or format collections. The rise of the, of the concept of intrinsic value to consider how and under what circumstances the information and the artifact that holds the information must be preserved. I know at my own institution we've taken uh, great interest in trying to define intrinsic value. Uh, the, the problem uh, arises especially in connection with preservation microfilming. But it is an important issue for us all to consider, and it makes us all realize that the value of the information can and often is considered independently of the artifact in which the information is found. Moreover, and in a somewhat different context, there's already talk of integrating the various MARC formats. About 18 months ago, I saw a, a brief statement by a member of Marby, and if anybody here can fill me in on the initial machine-readable machine bibliographical instruction, John? Is that some... It's the committee, it's the committee um, uh, sponsored by the Library of Congress to help uh, maintain and monitor the, the format and the data elements that are in it. And as these data, as the various formats, books and music scores and all the rest of them become more and more uh, detailed and complicated, there is some attention being paid to whether or not the various data elements can't be interchangeable from one format to the next. I think there is great interest in the prospect of that and certainly would make things simpler for many of us. In any case, the data elements and the categories within the specific formats are becoming increasingly broad and the possibility of adapting them so they can, maybe, maybe we can have one common format with lots of different applications to material is very attractive indeed. Subject access problems and other needs for information will continue to um, uh, focus the on the differences in the formats and perhaps over the course of time, uh, the problem of the inadequacy of subject access and the intractable difficulty in creating thesauri and controlled vocabularies will inevitably lead to some sort of integration. 
Some systems people think the only solution is free text searching, which I find <laughs> Uh, would be lovely, but I can't imagine uh, the power of any machine that's going to cover recorded and printed information and come up with index terms from it. In any case, uh, the clear trend and desire is to integrating the formats and to trying to separate the information from the media in which it is carried. Another factor that I think is propelling rare book librarians and archivists closer together is that of administrative reality. In an age of scarcity, Librarians whose normal condition is growth must expect to deliver their services while managing a shrinking staff. Staff simply costs too much, and administrators are looking for ways to pare down those costs. There will be great emphasis on reducing or eliminating duplication of services, and this is especially true in special collections. How might this be done? By centralizing administrative supervision and reducing service points by educating staff about other units and making staffing patterns flexible, trying to integrate catalogs and databases and adopt common procedures for services such as photo duplication, reader registration, and the like. Train staff to see ostensibly different activities such as selection for conservation or something very similar regardless of the format of the material so that there are more interchangeable uh, so the staff becomes, in effect, much more adaptive and interchangeable. The proliferation of types of materials in special collections, photographs, ephemeral collections, and so on, are growing rapidly. And these are especially congenial to archival procedures, despite their printed nature. Moreover, collection development for libraries can and should apply to more archival material as well. So to summarize the factors that seem to, be, seem to me to be pointing to integration of rare books and archives, intrinsic value is increasingly important both to rare book collections and to archives. Integration of the various uh, formats for machine-readable cataloging will bring archives and rare books increasingly close. Changing patterns of research use puts a premium on lists and controlled vocabularies that are congenial to the machine and will be useful in research in both areas. Administrative reality means reducing service points and duplication of service. Also, to train staff to be knowledgeable and familiar about collections and procedures in various units, including rare books and archives. Several people ask me, apropos of the title of this talk, which is which? Rare books, the hare, the tortoise? What about archives? The point, of course, is not to identify either with the hare or the tortoise. The point is they have the same goal, if different methods and styles of arriving there. And as new factors affect the administration of such collections, we will find it increasingly difficult to distinguish between them. Thank you. <laughs>